0: You will remain standing, please, hear the word of the Lord as he speaks to us this morning. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, and lifting his eyes then, and seeing a large crowd that was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, and Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that He had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, Jesus withdrew again from the mountain by Himself. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for this Word. Bless and strengthen us with it at this time, we pray. In your Son's name, Amen. Please be seated. If you would grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We're continuing on in our series about the Gospel of John, looking, focusing primarily upon what it means that He is the one to whom we believe He is the one we are focusing our thoughts and our prayers upon. Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. This is a fi- fairly familiar text. If you are... Uh, a Christian, or if you have very little connection with the church, my guess is that many of you have run into this passage and have interacted with this. My guess is if you speak with people on the street, most people would know certain things about Jesus, the fact that He walked on water, maybe the Sermon on the Mount, some of the parables, certainly something about the cross, and if you were to press them, probably this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. As Doug mentioned earlier, that's in part because of all the things that Jesus did, all the different aspects of the events of his life, this is the one miracle that is reported in all four of the Gospels. Now, to me, that's especially uh, instructive because we understand that John most likely wrote his Gospel the last. After the other Gospels had been written, some years passed before John wrote his Gospel... And I believe that it's highly likely that John had access to the other Gospels, and yet, even though the other Gospels already contained the story of Jesus' feeding the 5,000, John then felt it was also important to include that story as well. I think that's highly instructive for us as we go along. Most of the events of this uh, story are probably well known to us. Jesus had been ministering in Galilee... And the passage begins in verse 1 by saying after this, that's a vague mention of time, not really sure any particular time frame is understood, but there's most likely to be about a six-month gap here between the events that took place in chapter 5 and these events that happened here in chapter 6. And during those six months, Jesus has been very active in healing people. That's the message of verse 2, where it says that the people are coming after Jesus because of his continual healing. Jesus has been an ongoing ministry here, both in preaching, but also in healing the sick. And so there's this massive group of people that are following after Jesus. Now Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and the people follow. That's a trek of somewhere between 7 and 10 miles. The people walked to follow after Jesus, because they're in raptured by the fact that he is doing these things, healing people, etc., they're caught up by this. And so they follow after him for, again, 7 to 10 miles or so, and Jesus is sitting on a mountainside, speaking with his disciples, and he looks out and he sees the people. Now, the other gospel writers make it clear that when Jesus looks out and sees the other people, the people coming, he's moved by compassion. So some of the, the force of this miracle that we're about to look at, is motivated, at least in the other gospel writer's mind, by a sense of compassion for the people. They're going to be hungry. They're on a long trip here. They're dedicated or committed to following or just finding out more about Jesus. And so moved by compassion, he performs this miracle. John, however, leaves that detail out. He doesn't indicate that he's doing this on behalf of the people. As a matter of fact, I think he hints at a different motive or an additional motive that Jesus has in mind when he performs this miracle. He looks out, has all these people gathered around him and says to Philip, says, hey, where do we get money to buy enough food or, or how much food do we need in order to feed these folks? And Philip looks out at all the people and says, we can't do that, you know, this is way beyond our capability. And that sets up then Jesus' miracle as he has people sit down text says that there's 5,000 men now that's uh, probably to be understood as 5,000 heads of households so not only are the men present but also most likely the women and children so you could have upwards of 20,000 people here that have gathered around jesus and jesus sees them and says where do we get the bread to feed all of these people philip says jesus i can't do that and then jesus goes uh, and performs the miracle, Andrew, Simon Peter's uh, brother, is sticking his nose in little kids' lunch boxes and says, hey, here's somebody with five barley loaves and two fish. Uh, The two fish in this picture, uh, we shouldn't think of it as we do, you know, bluegill or something. This would have been a garnish or a relish or something that you would put upon the bread, help the bread taste better. So he's got five barley loaves. And yet, what can we do with all of that for all these people? Well, Jesus, as the text says, and you're well familiar with, prays for it, blesses it, breaks it, gives it out to the people, and everyone eats their fill. Following that, they collect 12 baskets of leftover food yet that is still present. The people, seeing this miracle, respond by saying, this is the prophet, and try to make Jesus a king. Right then and there, want to start a revolution to make Jesus their king at this point in the game. When I was in college, one of my professors gave us a midterm exam. And the midterm exam was a group project. And he gave us the group project, this task to happen, and there were about four or five different people in the groups. And so I hate group projects. I just hate them because inevitably I get stuck with all the loonies You know, they come up with all the nutty ideas about how to solve the project. Or I'm stuck with the lazy people that won't pull their weight. And so here I am. I've got this group. And sure enough, I get placed in this group. And right off the bat, now, it was a really simple, straightforward project. It wasn't really hard. But the, the loonies start going loony. And the lazy people are being lazy. And I'm just getting more and more annoyed and all this kind of stuff. So after a while, I was just like, hey, just forget it, all you, you know. I'll do the work. Just let me do it. I I have an idea. Let's just do it my way. And I just barreled over everybody. I didn't quite physically push them out of the way, but it was close to that. I was like, just let me do this job and get it done. Now, I have to say, I did a really good job. You know, it it, it came out just perfect, just kind of what I was trying to do across the board. And so at the end of the week, then we all get together and we present our projects. And the rest of the class is presenting there more than half of the group didn't even finish the project. And I'm sitting there thinking, you losers. You know, how terrible, You know they, they didn't even get the job done. It's my turn to present and, you know, this is my, this is our project. You know, and, so, and this kind of stuff. And I'm saying, hey, this is what we did and, and we finished it and it was really good. And imagine my surprise when I get the grade and I get a big, fat F. Wait a second. It was well done. I did it. It was well done. It would finish the project on time. I was really frustrated. So I go up to the teacher afterwards, the prof, and I say, how can I get an F on this project? He said, the point of the test was to see how you would work together as a group. I said, okay, F. You know, I (laughs) complete. The point of the test was to see how you work, and I completely completely missed the point of the test and because i didn't understand what was being tested i completely and totally failed grab your bibles for a second and look in verse five we're in chapter six in verse five here jesus sees the crowds coming and then he turns to philip and he says where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat Now, he turns to Philip, and Philip's probably a good person to turn to because as the text makes clear in other spots, the Bible makes clear in other spots, Philip was a native of that area. He grew up in Bethsaida, which is a town not far away. So Jesus turns to somebody who's local and says, hey, where do we get the bread to to feed these people? Look at verse 6. Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus puts a test in front of Philip. Every day you seek to live your life faithfully before the Lord. The Lord puts before you a test. And if you don't know what the test is about, it's really hard to pass it. What's the test? That he has in mind here what is the test that jesus puts forward to philip maybe it's just a test of geography hey uh philip where is it that the local walmart is you know he's he's trying to find out where he can buy the bread maybe the test is hey philip how quickly can you calculate how much money is necessary to buy all the right amount of it or maybe the test is hey philip do we have enough money in our coffers in order to buy everybody a, a, a morsel of bread. Well, clearly that's not the test at all. What is the test that Jesus has in mind here for Philip? He asks Philip a question specifically to test him. What's the test that is here? Now, I think that Philip passes this test with flying colors. I think he passes it marvelously. Look at how Philip responds. In verse 7, Philip then answers him, 200 denarii, that's 200 days of work. Uh, a denarii would be about what you would g- earn for one day's worth of work. 200 days of work, if you include Sabbath, not working in the Sabbath, you're talking about eight months of labor. Philip says eight months of labor, eight months worth of money would not be, a, be enough to buy everyone just enough so they could get just a little morsel. Not a whole lot, but just a just a bite we can't get for everybody here for eight months worth of bread. And that's assuming that we can find some place to buy it. Because of course, it's not like there is a Walmart or there is a big grocery store or something like this. Most people bought brought made Bread, all on their own. They didn't go buy it somewhere, but they made their own bread. And so you'd have to find someplace that would quickly get enough bread put together, made for 20-some thousand people to eat. What's Philip's response to the test? That's impossible. I can't do this. I am inadequate to the task. And in acknowledging this, I believe that Philip passes a necessary test that is incumbent upon every single Christian to admit and to be confronted with right up and down the line. And that is our inadequacy to the task. When we come to a relationship with Jesus Christ. When we come to a relationship with God, we are being told to present ourselves holy and blameless in His sight. And for people who were raised in America, for people who are raised in the West, particularly over the past couple hundred years, we have this notion that, man, we are supposed to work hard, we are supposed to tackle the, the problem, we are supposed to have success, we're supposed to fight so that we can conquer the things that are ahead uh, before us. And that in many ways is a wonderful attitude, a candid attitude, get out there and let's conquer the things. Is there anybody here that seriously doubts that sooner or later the scientific community will conquer cancer? Okay, cancer is a terrible thing. Right now we clearly don't have it beaten, but my guess is that most of you with me kind of have that assumption that a hundred years from now or whatever it's going to go the way of polio or something like that that we will get our hands around it and we will ultimately conquer this after all we have sent people to the moon allegedly you know we get people to the moon and stuff you assume that we can conquer certain things like cancer we have a can-do attitude we have an, an expectation that we can conquer things and that's a great for many things But when we come to our relationship with the Lord, when we come to the essence of what it means to be a disciple, when it comes to the calling that you have as a Christian, not simply a calling, by the way, to be in relationship with the Lord, but the calling to be a father, the calling to be a wife, the calling to be an employee, the calling to be a neighbor, when we come up with the challenges that face us each and every day as a Christian, what does God desire for us? We are left, we are supposed to be left with exactly the feeling that Philip says. That's impossible. I can't do it. And in doing so, in acknowledging that, in embracing that, we are passing the first part of the test. That's hard. Because we are built to have that kind of an idea that, boy, if somebody says, no, you can't do this, by golly, I'll show them, I'm going to try really hard, I'm going to conquer How many people use that kind of negative motivation? To, I mean, there are sitcoms and there are movies that are all built around that idea that if we say, no, if somebody says no to me, then I'm going to fight really hard and I'm going to prove them that I can do the point. That's and built into us and underlying all of that is this horrid sense of pride that Satan inflames in our hearts by saying, don't believe that you can't do it. Yes, it's true. You too can be like God. You too can be God. And that's nothing but Satan's undercutting the very reality of what God is testing us to demonstrate and to see and to recognize the embrace in our lives that yes, in so much of what God has called me to, I can't do it. Now, if you embrace that, is somehow you've passed the test. I don't think you've yet passed the test because the test is not here to make you feel bad. The whole point of the gospel message is not God up in heaven trying to say, how can I make sure that everybody feels as bad as they can? That's wormology. That's not Christianity. Wormology, making you feel like a worm. The whole point of Christianity is not if you sense and recognize your brokenness, your insufficiency, the fact that you cannot, that you are unable before God to attain the status, to attain those goals that He puts forward before you, if that turns you to despair... And oh, I just want to crawl in a hole and hide. Or worse, if it turns you just to embrace your brokenness. Well, that's just me. I'm just not adequate and that's all there is to it. You've missed the Gospel message. Because the test here for Philip is not simply so that Philip sits there and says, God, I can't do it. And if Philip somehow turns into a navel gazer, Oh God, I can't do it. And all I'm going to do is stare at my stomach and see how terrible I am. That's not the goal here. Uh, That's not the point for for Philip. It's not the point for any one of us. What we're supposed to do, recognizing our inadequacy, recognizing our brokenness, is then to notice what happens next in the text, in, in the test. Look at verse 11. Jesus has everybody sit down on the grass, and then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, He distributed them to the people. The very thrust of this passage is not to make Philip feel bad about himself, but to make Philip recognize that he can't do it, but who is standing before him with all of his glory and power, capability and love? It is God Himself that stands there and recognizes and and is desirous for you to realize who you are so that you can turn from who you are and embrace and recognize who He is, that He is the sufficient one, that He is completely capable, that He is the one who then stands and is able to distribute the food to everyone, not so everybody gets a little morsel, but so that they are full and so that they are satisfied. And so in your task to be a good father, in your task to be a good neighbor, to be a good employer or an employee in every one of those tasks that on your own is so far beyond your abilities. Not to do the job. You can do that. But to do the job in a way that honors and pleases our Lord in every possible way. He wants you to realize your inadequacy not so that you fall apart before Him, but so that you fall into Him. So that then you say, yes, I can't, but Jesus, my Lord, absolutely can. There is nothing impossible with the Lord. So if you pass the test, if you're able to get past your pride, if you're able to get past your own arrogance, your own assumption that, by golly, I can do it, or somebody around me can do it, if only we try hard enough. If you can get past that and say and recognize your sin and your brokenness the way that it really is and say, okay, I can't measure up to the standard that the Lord has. I can't be that person that God desires me to be. If you have passed a test, if you've said that, and then you turn and you say, okay, Lord, I give myself completely to You. I lean upon You because what I can't do, You absolutely certainly can. But there's more to this test. And it comes in verse 12. Look at the very next verse. After Jesus has passed out the loaves and the fish at the end of verse 11, people had as much as they wanted. And then they gathered up the baskets. They gathered up the leftover. How much leftover? Twelve basketfuls. Twelve basketfuls of leftovers. Why twelve, by the way? Well, twelve because of there's 12 disciples, everybody's got their basket. Maybe there's 12 tribes. Sure, that's the whole people of God. That's the picture here, that, that there's an overabundance of God's blessings. Not just a little bit. God just doesn't bless you just enough that you need to go on in life. His blessings are abundant and overflowing in every possible way, and they reach not to just the special people, not to the disciples, not to those people that are trying really hard. They reach to everyone. Twelve baskets full of leftovers after everyone is satisfied. The test that the Lord puts before each one of us every day, the calling that He has given to you to be His faithful servant, to be His obedient love, and the the embrace of His grace, that task is far beyond our capabilities. And we have to recognize that. But that recognition turns us towards our Savior, where we can see completely the sufficiency of everything we need and everything we lack, and He pours that sufficiency out upon us in ways that completely overflow us. Now, it's true that we don't recognize it sometimes. Sometimes we can't see because we insist that God does things the way we want Him to. We can't see the things that He is truly doing to flood you with His grace and His mercy. But that's what our Lord has promised for everybody here. That's the test that He provides every day. You go home today and you face that test. You go out tomorrow and you face that test. Will you acknowledge that you are dependent completely and totally on our God, a completely anti-American message, a completely anti-Western way of looking at this world, no, I'm not going to lift myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to fall into the arms of the sufficient Lord who has promised me the abundant life. How do we respond to this? I think we're supposed to respond exactly like the people do respond. They look at Jesus. They see this miracle. And they say, my gosh, this must be the prophet. This must be the one that speaks the very words of God. This must be the one that I orient my whole life around. That I turn everything in my life around. And while they tried to do it too early for each one of us, We need to embrace Him as King. Just like they desired to do. If I am leaning everything in my life upon the Lord, if I give myself totally and completely to Him, then I will embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, now and forever. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, be gracious to us, Lord, for we realize that that is the only means whereby inadequate, insufficient, broken people like us can fulfill the calling that You have given to us, that great calling to be Your children, that great calling to be Your servants, that great calling to worship You, We can only do so, Lord, not through the skills that we bring or the gifts that we have, but only, Lord, as we lean upon You completely and totally. And, Lord, as You have demonstrated Yourself to be fully sufficient for every need and that You will pour out Your blessings abundantly upon us. Lord, we thank You and we praise You for that grace and all the goodnesses that You bring upon us Open our hearts more and more to Your love and Your care at this time, we pray in Your Son's name. Amen.